this morning, beginning in verse 15. And when I'm finished reading, because we are so thankful that we have this gift of the word of God here, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond with thanks be to God. Starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who has wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and, you should, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, yes and amen. We are glad that you're here as we are in week two of our series entitled um, The Bible Doesn't Say That. And if you want to catch up on that, you can go to our website and hear the first message about that. Um, this series sort of birthed out of a conversation with some church members when I was volunteering and getting ready for Easter. And um, we basically came up and I walked away from that conversation Understanding that a lot of people um, either have ought or disagree with Christianity about certain things that they think the Bible says. And in reality, the Bible doesn't say any of those things whatsoever. And the opening sentence that we said is, Assumption about the Bible always leads to corruption of the Bible. That when we assume that we know what the Bible says, there inevitably, there will always be corruption of it. 
And we started the series, and, and the goal of the series is we said that when it comes to the scriptures, that there's um, about five types of people when it comes to the Bible. We said that there are those who reject the Bible outright, that they don't believe that it is God's word and that they have disagreements with that, that there are those who are around the Bible, there are those who are under it, and then there are those who are in it. But then the main category that the Scripture is always moving us to is those who have the Scriptures in them. And in Colossians 3, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And what we said is in our context in the Butler County area, um, predominantly the majority of people are those who are around it and even those who are under it like you right now. Maybe you even listen to podcasts and you're under it. And maybe there's even some of us who are in the scriptures, but that's not the end goal. The end goal is to have the word of God in us and then when that takes place, then we don't have to assume what the Bible says. Then we can remove those barriers that we have in our lives. And we said this sentence, before we can know what the Bible does and doesn't say, we have to know what the Bible is. And so a couple weeks ago, we spent some time uh, remembering and rehearsing what God's word is to us out of Hebrews chapter 4. And you can go back online and listen to that because we don't want to assume anything. We want to be people of the word here at Westside. Yes and amen? Oh, we only got one service. You only got one chance to do that, okay? Because we want to be people of the word at Westside. Yes and amen? amen? Amen. And this week, we start with our first phrase. We said that there's a number of popular phrases, and maybe you've heard the sentence before, you know. Well, you know, the Bible says, and this week, our sentence is, well, you know, the Bible says, forgive and forget, just with a number of hands, uh, or just by a show of numbers, raise your hand if you've ever heard that sentence before. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, the Bible says, um, forgive and forget. Eh, wrong. Um, nowhere in the Bible. There is no chapter and verse that I can show you today as to where that comes from. Actually, I did a little bit of research this week, and that comes from one of two places. The first place that we have recorded is the very famous Spanish novel, Don Quixote, which I know is your favorite novel of all time, right? Um, and in Don Quixote, written in the 17th century, he says, let us forget and forget. I don't know. I can't even do the accent, okay? <laughs> let us forget and forgive all injuries. The second place that it comes from, which is probably more popular um, those of you fans of musicals and playwrights, is William Shakespeare's King Lear is where that comes from. And in passing, he says, pray now that you forget and forgive. Interesting, right? Very famous phrase. Um, nowhere in the Bible, but actually where I think that it comes from, remember, the whole goal of our series is to remove those assumptions, assuming what the Bible says. But I would assume that that phrase comes from a corruption of Jeremiah 31, 34. And, and Jeremiah 31, 34 says this, God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Israel about the new covenant and he says these words, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. 
for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Here it is. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That is good news, yes? That is really, really good news. That is a bumper sticker verse. That is good news. And I would assume that the phrase forgive and forget probably comes from Jeremiah 31, 34. Um, But there's a problem, okay? Just a few things. The first one is this. This is God speaking. And you're not God. Any questions? Okay, right? So this is God saying that He will, because of the new covenant that He will institute, He will remember their sins no more. So number one, this is from God's perspective. And what I like to remind us every single Sunday is that you're not God and it's not about you. Amen. Welcome to Westside. Okay, right? The second thing is this, is that um, does God forget things? Uh, That's kind of a complicated topic, right? One of the attributes of God, God's character, God is omnipresent, meaning that he's everywhere at all times. And then one of his attributes is that he is omniscient, which means that God is all-knowing. That God knows everything. A scripture verse for you is Psalm 147.5 that says that he knows all things and remembers all things. So now the Bible must contradict itself, right? See, that's why I don't believe in the scriptures because they're full of error and all of that stuff. Well, well, just hold on a second. What we see in Jeremiah 31.34 is that God chooses, this is very important, that God chooses because of His covenant love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that He chooses not to deal with His people based on their sins. That was a good spot for an amen, okay? This is what we call in Christianity the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That because of what, we're not even five minutes into the sermon and we're already preaching, okay? That because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Psalm 51.5 teaches that we are born in iniquity and sin. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And Colossians chapter 2 says that we are hostile in our mind towards God. But for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's because of the good news of Jesus. So, when it comes to this phrase, forgive and forget, I would venture to say this, that the phrase forgive and forget is not only unbiblical, but it's harmful. And here's what I mean by that. We've already seen that that's from God's perspective, that God has the power to be able to not deal with His people based upon their sins. But at the same time, God is still all-knowing. But for us as human beings who have been sinned against, who have been hurt grievously, some of us in this room are victims of sexual assault, 
and somebody maybe in their good nature tried to drop a hallmark phrase to comfort you and to say, well, you know, the Bible says forgive and forget, and then you're left with the trauma that has been done to you, and then on top of that trauma, you now feel this level of guilt and shame because you're trying to work through something and get something out of your mind that has been done so grievously to you. And so now you're shackled almost with this guilt and shame thinking that, you know, maybe I don't have God's love or I don't understand God's forgiveness because I can't seem to forget about what was done to me. The scriptures speak a lot about forgiveness. And that's what we're going to deal with with the remainder of the sermon. Because listen, I want to free us today. That in the book of Acts, it says that if you believe upon the name of Jesus Christ, that you can be freed from everything. From everything. And I believe that some of us in the room today have the shackles of guilt and shame. And some of us are even dealing with bitterness and unforgiveness. Listen, forgiveness is foundational to Christianity. That literally the essence of our faith deals with the topic and the issue of forgiveness. And we've said this sentence many times, but here it is again. Forgiveness is the fuel that keeps relationships moving forward. That if you do not have forgiveness, you will have a wake of devastation of relationships. And I thought about that when I was watching uh, the news over the past couple of weeks and hearing about, you know, the gas shortage that was happening in certain parts of the country and seeing all the information about all of that and even some cars stalled out on the side of the road in places and lines backed up at gas stations. And when I saw that and was thinking about this sermon, I thought that is a perfect illustration when you look at relationships. All of these relationships that are, so to speak, stalled out on the side of the road and aren't moving forward, ended marriages, ended relationships with fathers and sons and families because there's no more fuel of the forgiveness to keep the relationship moving forward. Listen, if you're dating in here or if you're a newly married uh, couple, you've got to know this, that forgiveness is the key to your marriage. That if you want a good marriage and if you want a good relationship, then you better get good at forgiving. And luckily we have not just an example, but the truth of forgiveness found in our faith. So before we dive into this, it's always helpful, before we look at what forgiveness is, I want us to spend some time about what forgiveness is not. Just because in the church, for some reason, with platitudes and Hallmark and Chip and Joanna Gaines and Shiplap and all of this type of stuff, um, forgiveness somehow has got a little bit muddied in the waters. And so um, what are six things that um, forgiveness is not? Well, the first thing is this. Forgiveness is not forgetting. We've already covered that. Um, Actually, we'll see in just a little bit that the scriptures command us to remember much more than it does to forget. Secondly, forgiveness is not immediately trusting, okay? 
And oftentimes we feel this tension. But some of us have maybe had money stolen from us, lies in a relationship. Some of us have even uh, dealt with physical and emotional and verbal abuse, okay? And then let's say that that's happened in a relationship and you've suffered from physical abuse in a relationship and you're in the journey and process of forgiving that person, but you come to me and you ask me, should I go back home and should I be under the same roof with the person that physically abused me? And I will say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because listen, you've got to understand this, that trust is lost in buckets and earned in drops. That that relationship has to be built back together. The third thing is this. Um, forgiveness is not foregoing consequences. That we can, listen, this is a fascinating thing. You can still pursue forgiveness and justice at the same time. That just because we're pursuing forgiveness does not mean that we forego justice. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a good verse. That's a great verse. That means now that the, that the condemnation and the punishment for our sin, Jesus has dealt with on the cross of Christ. But it does not say, therefore now, there is no consequences for those who are in Christ Jesus. I've told you this story before that I had a conversation with a guy that the night before had drank his weight in liquor and wrapped his car around a telephone pole and we're sitting there in the hospital and he's bawling and he's weeping and he looks up at me and by the way, this is his third DWI and he looks at me in the eye and says, I can't believe God's doing this to me. And I thought, Holy Spirit, restrain me now. And I looked at him in the eyes and I said, don't ever say that again. You drank 14 beers and wrapped your car around a telephone pole. The only thing that God has done is spared your life. He spared your life. There's consequences to our actions. And listen, this is very difficult oftentimes for people that are dealing with addictions. People that are now trying to walk a road of sobriety because they've lived so long trapped under the chains of addictions that it's so difficult to try to amend and remake those relationships and having to deal with past consequences. The next thing is this, forgiveness is not a one-time thing. I do believe that there is a moment and a, um, a moment where you solidify that decision, where it drops from your head to your heart. But in the text that was just read to us, Peter actually tries to go and wiggle his way out. Did you catch that when it was read? Jesus is talking about forgiveness. And then Peter, like, can, can you imagine the disciples? They probably group together, kind of like our kids do at home. Whenever our kids want to do something, they kind of have a little meeting together. And then they nominate somebody. And it's mostly Piper, the youngest one, right? And so, so she sort of comes up and then asks for something. And it seems like that the disciples were like, yo, this teaching about forgiveness is really difficult. Peter, why don't you go ask him if there's like a limit to this, right? And Peter's like, how, like seven? And then Jesus is like, um, how about seven times 70? And it's like, whoa. It's not a one-time thing. And we're going to learn more about that in just a minute. But how about this? Forgiveness is not waiting on an apology. I probably hear this more than anything else. 
that somebody sitting in my office or across the table with a cup of coffee, I'm, I'm fine, pastor. I'm good. I'm not bitter about this or anything like that. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good on my end, okay? I'm totally good. I'm not angry about it or anything like that or obsess about it and lose sleep over it or anything. I'm fine, okay? I'm just waiting on them to come to me and then I'm ready to forgive them, right? And I always ask the same question every time. How's that going? How's that going? Still waiting, right? Listen, um, I'm going to tell you something. That day may never come. It may never come. And we believe at Westside that the gospel is our motivation for everything. And let me just ask you a question. Did God the Father wait for you to come and apologize to him before he sent his son? No. God is the initiator and we are the responders. Forgiveness is not waiting in on apology. And then this, forgiveness is not always reconciliation. Now I do believe, and I believe this to the core of my bones, that if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that if Jesus Christ really did die, and God three days later raised him, that I believe that nothing is so dead that it can't be resurrected. And listen, we've seen that at Westside. We've seen people overcome addictions. We've seen marriages restored. We've seen relationships that seem to be dead have the Holy Spirit breathe life into them and resurrect those relationships. But listen, forgiveness takes one party. Reconciliation takes two. Reconciliation takes two. And whether we like it or not, oftentimes I hear people say, I just want the relationship to go back to like it was before. And the reality is, is that it can never do that. That's what's so grievous about when you get sinned against or when something like that happens. These are the things that forgiveness is not. So now, what is forgiveness? And I'm not going to have enough time to dive into this text. There is so many good things here. But I think we're going to see three things. I think we're going to see that forgiveness is a choice, that forgiveness is costly, and that forgiveness is a command. Okay? So the first thing is this. Forgiveness is the choice to cancel the debt Fully, freely, and forever. That's your definition of forgiveness, right? Even if you have to say it through gritted teeth and you're like, my goodness, right? But what I see in the text and in the parable in Matthew 18, 23, look at verse 23, it says this. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So Jesus is talking about forgiveness. And by the way, this entire context of these verses deals with believers. It deals in the context of the church. Jesus says when your brother or sister sin against you, which tells me this, it's not a matter of when you enter into a covenant community if you will get hurt and if you will have to forgive and if you will get sinned against. It's a matter of when that happens, how will you respond? How will you respond? And Jesus said, this is a huge theological statement. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. We should lean in whenever we see something like that in Scripture. 
Because Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, is getting ready to tell us what the kingdom of God is like. And then he tells the very famous parable of the unforgiving servant. And basically, the whole basis of the parable is that there is an astronomical debt. Whenever we look in verse 24, it says 10,000 talents. I mean, just write in the margin of your Bible, a gazillion dollars, okay? That's essentially what it is. The basis of the parable is to show that this is an unpayable debt, that a servant had an unpayable debt. And the king said, you need to pay this debt. And he fell on his knees and said, have mercy on me. And then there's this little phrase, the master or the king had pity on him and canceled the debt. Listen, first and foremost, something that we have to understand is forgiveness is not a feeling first. Forgiveness is a choice then your feelings follow. And let me just tell you something. It might be a long time before those feelings catch up with the choice. This is what we discuss and talk about in premarital counseling. That love is not a feeling. I mean, our culture's version of love is some baby with a diaper running around shooting people with arrows or something, right? Think about how reckless that is, okay? That is not love is a choice, So let me tell you this, forgiveness is a choice and a process. It is a process. And if you don't understand this, what you'll do is you'll be in this process and not know how to verbalize it. You'll not know what to do. You'll not know when this process is ending because you're fighting these feelings. But you, and then it's guilt and shame and everything's piling on. Um, There was a book written a number of years ago called Don't Forgive Too Soon. And it's an extremely helpful book, Dennis Lynn. And what he does is he takes the stages of grief and parallels them with forgiveness. And I think it's massively helpful to spend some time here. Because the more and more that I talk with people and the more and more that I know forgiveness is foundational to our faith, and that forgiveness is the fuel that keeps relationships moving forward, most people, most people have a willingness to want to do this. But most people don't have the tools or the how to be able to do it. And they feel trapped in all of these emotions. And so I want to spend some time on these stages, and and I want you to ask yourself, Where am I in this? If you have a relationship that needs forgiveness, where are you at in this? Um, The first stage that we see is this, stage one, which is denial. While we know something ugly happened, we don't admit that it hurt us, and we just go on with everyday life. This is when your spouse sits you down and looks at you and says that I've been seeing someone for three months and I don't love you anymore. And, and you go, we, we just had dinner last night. We just, wh- what? We were just on vacation. Like, this is where your mind literally cannot process the amount of trauma that has taken place. And it has to catch up. And you're in this going, there's no way that this is true. And then it moves on to anger, stage two. We recognize clearly that we are upset and we rehearse to ourselves over and over and over again what the other person did to us. This is a very tricky part of the process. 
Because the scriptures tell us to be angry, but to not sin. And to not let the sun go down on your anger. So there's a time limit on your anger. So if it comes to a married couple um, that's dealing with a relationship, and maybe there's been infidelity or something that has caused a momentary separation, that is a crucial time. A crucial time. It has to be momentary. It has to be under guidelines. And there has to be an end goal result of coming back together. And this is when you're in the shower, when you're making coffee, when you're doing laundry. And then all of a sudden you begin to cry. And you think, I cannot believe that happened. And you rehearse the scene over and over again. And then it moves to bargaining, stage three. And what we see in bargaining is that we contemplate the possibility that we could forgive, but only if the other person does exactly what we want them to do. So now what we're moving into, if we're not careful, is we're moving into judge and jury. What we're saying is, is that this relationship will only happen in my guidelines, under my roof, and this way, and you have to earn this back, and you have to do all of these things. Now, we did say that trust is lost in buckets and earned in drops. Forgiveness is grace. It is a free choice. But in this stage of bargaining, oftentimes this is where relationships end and fail is because without outside godly, wise counsel, the person who's been sinned against comes up with astronomical guidelines in order for the relationship to continue. And quite honestly, all of those guidelines have as a motivation underneath them, vengeance. In order, I want you to hurt every day while you earn this back the way that I am hurting. But then it moves to stage four. In stage four, we see depression. We begin to give up on waiting for the other to change, and we lose hope. And then we begin to blame ourselves for what happened. If only I, could, if only I would have loved more. If only I could have done. If only I did this. If only, if only. And we go in Dorothy syndrome. And then what we end up seeing is we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel anymore. And that it can never be reconciled. And then the last stage is stage five, which is acceptance. That we accept what has happened. And we recognize that it was in the past. And we acknowledge that we have learned from our experience. Listen, what I find very interesting about when Jesus talks at the very first part of those verses in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, is he doesn't give a time limit. Have you noticed that? Now, he says, take a, you know, first you go by yourself, and then you take witnesses, and then you do this. We've preached many sermons on that and walked through conflict resolution and all of that. But what I find interesting is that Jesus doesn't give a time limit. He doesn't say that after it's the fourth time, then what you need to do is no. Listen, what we need to understand is that forgiveness is a choice, but it's a process. And the choice is to fully and freely and forever release the debt that the person owes you. What we see in the scriptures about forgiveness and sin, sin is always used synonymous with the language of debt, right? So when Jesus teaches us to pray, 
the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What has happened when somebody hurts you and sins against you is they have taken something from you. Whether that be innocence, whether that be time, whether that be trust. And there is a debt that is left. And something or someone has to pay for that. Which leads us into the next thing. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is expensive. Look at what Jesus says in these verses. He says, When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. We talked about that, gazillion dollars. And since he could not pay, his master would order him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. You see, there is a debt. And somebody has got to pay this debt. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience, have pity, and I will pay everything. Well, no, you can't. The whole point of the parable is that you can't pay it. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, question, forgave him the debt. Well, what did the master have to do? Please don't miss it. This is the whole message right here. The master absorbed the blow. That's it. That's all that's literally left. Listen, when someone wrongs you and when someone hurts you, there is only two choices. There's only two choices. The first choice is to make them pay is to make them pay. That's vengeance. That's where bitterness sets in. That's where I'm going to, every conversation, everything that happens, I'm going to make you pay. Or the second thing is this, you pay. You pay. I love the way that Tim Keller says it. Tim Keller says that forgiveness is voluntary suffering. That's real forgiveness. Forgiveness is voluntary suffering because there is a debt, there is hurt, and somebody has to pay. And listen, this is what separates Christianity from all other religions and all other Dr. Phil's and Oprah's in all of the universe. Because what the Christian faith teaches us is that we owed a debt to God that we could not pay. That the very breath in your lungs, the life that you have is owed to God. It is a gift that we have been given. And our first parents, Adam and Eve, rather than worship God, wanted to be God themselves. And now that sin is in us and we are under that power. But what did God do? God did not make us pay. God absorbed the blow. Literally, think about this. In the Garden of Eden, whenever Adam and Eve sinned, God banished them from the garden, signaling that there was now separation in the relationship. And what did God put in front of the gate that led to the garden? Remember, this is our Ninja Turtle angel, right? It's an angel with a sword that went back and forth, symbolizing that the relationship now to God is guarded by a sword. And you fast forward into the story, and when Jesus was dying upon the cross, 
And for the Roman soldier to check and make sure if he was dead, what did he thrust into his side? The spear, the sword. That Jesus literally absorbed the blow, opening up the way back to God. That's why it says, in that moment, the earth shook. And then there was the walking dead scene where all the zombies popped out of the grave and walked around. And then the temple curtain tore from top to bottom, not bottom to top, not symbolizing that man had worked his way to God, but that God in his riches and kindness in Christ Jesus made his way to us. Listen, here's what I'm trying to say. There is no forgiveness without suffering. There is no forgiveness without suffering. And let me tell you this, I believe in today's culture, I believe that our culture actually now promotes unforgiveness. And here's why. Because now in our cancel culture society, it's all about power. And the most powerful person now is a victim. And so now if you can be the victim and not forgive anyone and rally other people around you and live in that unforgiveness and then cancel everybody else who disagrees and what it is, it's an avoiding of suffering. And I love what Colossians says. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Here it is. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen, there's got to be payment. And what we see that Christianity offers us is the motivation that God absorbed the blow. Listen, forgiveness is a choice. It's a choice to fully, freely, and forever cancel the debt. And then forgiveness is costly. And then the last thing is simply this. Forgiveness is a command. It's a command. This is not optional in the Christian faith. Jesus ends the parable with these pretty harsh and heavy words. When he says these words... Then the master called him in and said to him, you wicked servant. So what we have is this guy who got his debt freely, fully, and forever forgiven. And then what happens? He's walking down the street and sees somebody that owes him money and then tries to strangle this guy, snaps out. It's a much lesser debt and all of this. And then one of the servants goes, you were just forgiven by the king. And now the king calls him back in and says, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. So also my heavenly father, now he's wrapping it back up into the kingdom of God. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother. Here it is. From your heart. Jesus would be so bold to say that if you're worshiping in the temple and you're getting ready to offer your sacrifice, and you see somebody that you have ought against or has ought against you, that you are to leave your sacrifice there and to go and have a conversation. Translate that to 2021, 
And when you walk into these doors and you're singing a song and right before you come and partake in communion and you see that person that you had that disagreement with and then you haven't talked to and you haven't answered that text message and you haven't done anything, Jesus says that the most godly thing, the worship that God wants in that moment is not for you to come forward and do this and to continue to sing, but to go to that person and to make that right. Westside, look up here, don't miss this. What would it look like? What would it look like in Butler County? What would it look like in the world if there was a community of people that lived that way? Can you imagine what unbelievers would say? Instead now, unbelievers say they claim to be a Christian and look at them, they're the wicked servant. And so listen, here's what I'm trying to say, and this is what it sums up to everything today. The Bible does not teach forgive and forget. The Bible teaches us to never forget that you have been forgiven. That's the key. Listen, I don't know what relationship you're dealing with, and I can only imagine the hurt and the grievous sin Some of you didn't ask for any of this and you were handed so many broken relationships and it's affecting every, it's stealing the joy at Christmas time and at birthday parties and there's always a little level of anxiety and there's all of this and listen, all I have, I don't know the answer. I don't know, I don't know the answer, but I know this. I know that we are never to forget that we ourselves have been forgiven. I know that we're never supposed to forget that on that cross as Jesus died, as the wrath of God was satisfied, that Jesus paid the debt that I owed. And I love the way that it ends in the book of Ephesians. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentile in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by in the flesh with hands. Here it is again, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, have no hope and without God in the world but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ remember so as the worship team comes forward to lead us in a time I know no better time and no understanding as we come to the table to partake in the elements that the whole basis of this is to remember the story, to remember what God has done. Listen, forgiveness is the fuel that keeps your relationships moving forward. I don't know what the other person has done, and I'm sure we could have a long conversation about that. But what I'm asking you to do today is this, to press pause on the movie that you keep replaying about what they've done and what they need to do and what they haven't done and what you were owed. I want you to press pause on that And I want you to remember that moment that the gospel of Jesus Christ opened up your heart and mind. That moment when you understood that God fully knew you and all of your sin, but fully loved you at the same time. To remember the sweetness of that moment when you knew that in that moment God had forgiven you in Christ. 
In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And as we sing, you can come forward and partake in the elements of communion. This is for baptized followers of, of, of Jesus Christ. And then when you go back to your seats, hold on to those elements and we will walk through and partake in the Lord's Supper together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today grateful for your word. God, grateful for the exhortation to know truth. God, there's so many people in here today who are shackled by guilt and shame, who've heard forgive and forget, and they can't forget what's been done to them. And I pray by the mercy and the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would hear the truth, not forgive and forget, but the truth to never forget that we ourselves have been forgiven. Holy Spirit, have your way with us in this place today. May we see how great our debt was and how great our God is to pay that debt on our behalf. Jesus, make it real. We pray this all in the holy in precious name of Jesus Christ, amen.